<laughs> Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining the Dot podcast again. I have with me today Lee Atchison. He's an author, as most authors of value have many years of experience, including a lot of experience at Amazon and retail and on the AWS side as well. Worked with New Relic, uh, is now an independent consultant and has a cool book. So I'd like to just introduce and welcome Lee. And if you will, please tell us about yourself. Hi, Vaughn. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Lee Atchison. Uh, I've been in the industry for oh, about 30 years or so, but some of the most relevant parts started in 2005 when I started work at, uh, at Amazon. And that's back when Amazon was uh, just in the in doing retail. I was just doing books and electronics and a couple other categories. And and uh, what my first job there was um, is I ran the group that was trying to move Amazon from a monolithic application into a service-oriented architecture. So uh, automatically, I got thrown into the uh, in with the wolves on uh, on building large-scale, highly scaled service-oriented architecture and and making all that work. And so I learned a lot about building those sorts of um, of systems working in Amazon. And then uh, when AWS started, uh, I was asked if I wanted to join AWS. And I joined very early in the lifetime of AWS. And I built the Elastic Beanstalk service, which was the the first uh, 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 platform as a service offering that they built on top of their infrastructure as a service offerings. And so led them into... uh, into um, kind of a, a growth area with that. And Elastic Beanstalk is still a service today and still, I think, still doing doing strong. Every once in a while, I run into somebody who uses it for their application. So I was at the Amazon and AWS for a total of about seven, seven and a half years, then left and moved to uh, a small company at the time called New Relic. And New Relic was in the analytics space and uh, application analytics. And uh that company has grown to be several thousand people now. At the time I, I, I joined, it was just you know under 100 total people. It was a very small company. And while I was there, you know, they, they grew and, uh, and um, went through all the same growing pains that I did in Amazon. So it was kind of a, um, a, uh, a uh, trial by fire of bringing some of the experiences I had at Amazon and, and building scalable systems into, into New Relic. But I, I was at New Relic for about eight years and then left New Relic and now I'm I'm off on my own as my own consultant. Nice, nice uh, background. And um, I personally enjoy consulting. I like, uh, you know, engaging with a number of different clients and help them with both similar and completely different kinds of problems. Um, maybe you run into the same thing. Um, so I, I suppose you chose consulting as, um, well, it's time to, you know, see a lot, lot more of, uh, the world of it, I guess, and, and computing than you had in a few companies along the way. Yeah, that that's true. I, I think one of the things that I like doing is, uh, you know, the, the last two, three years at new relic, after I finished writing my book, um, they took me on a road and as, and, and, brought me to, you know, different trade shows and to customer meetings and to do book signings and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and that naturally got me engaged with 
you know, tons and tons and tons of customers who were, um, you know, having the same sorts of problems that I was addressing in the book. And so I had a opportunity to, to talk to a lot of different companies. And I, I found that, you know, that breadth of exposure to be fantastic. I, I'm one that loves breadth of exposure versus depth. And so I'd much prefer, you know, dealing with larger problems with more of them than, you know, deep nitty gritty, you know, uh, detailed problems. And so that's, that's the sort of thing I like to do. And so talking to lots of companies and lots of customers and, and, um, do, you know, learning all the problems was a, was a great experience and led very well into the consulting experience. It also led into a second edition of the book because, uh, Everyone I went to had gotten had received my book and said, "Well, let me tell you about our experiences with this." And so I, I got lots of stories and lots of, uh, of um, suggestions for improvements and things like that, and and uh, incorporated that into an updated version of the book later on. But it was it was a great exposure to be able to do that, and I always like talking to customers. Well, it's uh, uh, yeah, a great way to get your feet wet with the consulting experience too and getting all that feedback on your book that's that's really excellent so you you wrote this book architecting for scale maybe give us some background on it and what what motivated you to write it and um tell us about maybe what changed from the first edition to the second sure sure so you know i think as i mentioned when i moved to new relic they were running into scaling issues and they were just they were growing pains were were causing availability problems is what was happening. And what I discovered was I just came from Amazon or at least came to Amazon a couple of years before. And all the things that I saw Amazon doing to solve scaling and availability issues, New Relic wasn't doing. And, and I saw them running into roadblocks and problems. And, and I, it naturally put myself into a position where I was teaching the development org and the, operations org, how to do some of these availability things and put processes and systems in place that I learned from, uh, from Amazon. And uh, uh, what I figured as I did all that is I was kind of surprised, but I was well accepted and well adopted and helped grow the company. And I figured there must be a lot of other companies that run in the same sorts of problems like that. So I figured that was a, a good opportunity to, to write about that. And so that's when I Approached O'Reilly, they you know they were eager to to um, take on a book like that, and that's what led to the book Architecting for Scale. That that was the first edition. You know, as I mentioned, as soon as I did that, New Relic took me on the road to talk to customers, and you know, architect for rent. You know, come see the see the architect and buy New Relic while you're there. That you know that sort of <laughs> of a pre-sales model. And so I did a you know a lot of presentations and a lot of customer visits, trade shows, and things like that, and um, learned a lot from the customers that I ran into and the war stories. That, you know, They'd read the book and said, oh, this, this solved this problem of ours really well, and here's the problem we had and how it worked and how to make it happen and whatever. And so that led to lots of uh, ideas for the second edition. And so when, when O'Reilly approached me to do a second edition of the book, I had lots more stories to do. And I knew there was parts of the book that maybe didn't work quite as well in the first edition and other parts that needed to be expanded. So what I did is I, uh, I, I, uh, it's, a, it's actually a significantly different book than the first edition. It's, it has about 50% new content and about, um, it's about 
about 30% larger and about 50% new content. So there was some old content that was removed and replaced with new content. And uh, everything updated in a new section talking about cloud, which obviously was much more important as as the years went on. And and some other new con- uh, content uh, as well. And so it's it really is a different book now. So I, I certainly encourage listeners, if you've read my first edition of the book, you should read the second edition too. There's, I, yeah, I think you'll find a lot more useful information there as well. Yeah, I can imagine um, because, well, things have changed a lot even in the past uh, decade, even half decade. decade things are... Yeah you know, just uh, really different and um, microservices for one thing and, and even yep. function as a service, right? AWS, Lambda, whatever happens. Yeah, those are two new contexts. They weren't even in really of, of uh, they weren't major, major items to be discussed at the time. And, you know, back in 2016, containers was just becoming a thing, but not really mainstream yet. And, uh, you know, there was no Kubernetes or anything like that. There was no functions as a service to speak about. All that was new that came out after after all of this. And all of that is now addressed in the book as well. Yeah, although I guess Amazon in the retail side was kind of doing um, what I think a lot of people would call microservices. Maybe it was just thought of as service-oriented architecture, but, um, you know... Can you tell us just a little bit about that experience and, you know, the two pizza team and. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, uh, I learned service oriented architectures from Amazon is really where I learned it. And, and um, it, their, their model really was, um, you know, the, 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 the Stosa model that I talk about in my book really came from Amazon and it's the idea of, you have a, a single team that owns a service, top to bottom, front to back, everything having to do with what, how that service works. The, um, the development, the operation, the maintenance, the support, everything. And, uh, and also owns the SLAs of that service as well. The, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, of the running of the service. And that that model, as far as, um, of, you know, having small teams that own individual services created a really, loosely coupled architecture, which really allowed the Amazon to grow to be, you know, a single application that was huge and had um, a large number of people working on it because it was all loosely coupled. And that, that, that model worked extremely well. You mentioned the two pizza team. That was the, the uh, uh, Jeff Bezos's term for the size of the teams that were to own and manage and develop services. And they were about six to 10 people. The number of people it would take to feed with two pizzas is where that term came from, and uh, that while that model changed as the years went on, it was kept pretty similar to that. Most of the teams within Amazon were in the six to eight people or ten people range. Um, when they got to be much bigger than that, they usually were split into smaller teams, and then the services divided between them and all that sort of stuff. So it was really a um, a model that was very consistent and carried through throughout all of Amazon retail and continued as AWS was created and grew, they continued to use that same model in AWS as well. Cool. I wonder too, um, like in, in my implementing domain driven design book, my red book, um, I wrote about, uh, 
basically quoting sections of Pat Helen's paper on life beyond distributed transactions. And, uh, you know, he spoke of entities, partner entities, and things like that. Did that sort of, um, was that part of your world? It, not as much the form, formality of that. I mean, one of the things I will say, I think, about the Amazon culture is formal methodologies weren't as important as informal methodologies. But um, what was more important was, does this move us closer to being customer-focused or doing what the customer wanted? And that was much more important than making sure we followed formal formal methodologies. So you very rarely heard formal processes and systems and procedures described and or, or talked about. It was much more informal and much more whatever works figure out how to do it and then do, make and do it that way. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Good to know. Um, now, okay. Talk about one, um, you know, complete change in technology, uh, even beyond microservices and function as a service, AI, right? Um, what do you see happening in the AI world and, what does that have to do with, um, you know, various computing platforms and applications these days? Sure. Yeah. AI, you know, obviously it's growing in sophistication as well as importance, but, um, you know, and it's, we, we think about AI and modern applications. We normally think about, you know, the business critical areas that AI is being used for, you know, the, the image and video manipulation routing or, language interpretation, you know, Alexa, sorts of uh, functionality. Better be careful if I say Alexa too loud, she's going to respond. Um, you know, and forecasting, predicting, those sorts of business critical functions is what you normally think of when you think of AI and modern applications. But AI has been just as important in the IT operations standpoint of modern applications as well, too. You know, analyzing log files, analytics. You know, we we focus a lot on AI in New Relic. You know, um, identifying trends. You know, indicating when problems might be coming in the future, or when scaling needs might be happening in the future. Those are problems. Large quantities of data that needed simple answers out of it, and that AI was very well uh, suited for those sorts of problems. But more recently, AI has been also being used in the the IT development area as well, not just operations, but in development. You've seen a growth in uh, AI-assisted development tooling. You know, GitHub's created some new tools. Uh, you're seeing um, AI-related low-code tooling, like what you see from OutSystems and, and companies like that. And, and those have been growing in sophistication and capabilities and, and usefulness as well, too. The you know, complexity is a huge problem in application development, and AI has been a, a tool that's been able to help in the operation space and more and more in the development space as well. Interesting. Um, you know, personally, I'm a little reticent in working with clients to jump to AI. In, in fact, I I more so use the term machine learning or something like yeah. that, only because I don't want to sound... Um, you know, bandwagonish or something like that. But maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a lot more 
<clears throat> you know, AI relevance, even to what I'm working in, then maybe I'm willing to to talk about or or I don't know promote or at least suggest. Um, what do you think about those kinds of you know boundaries and and uh, differences? Yeah, it's it's actually a good question, and, and this is something I'm certainly guilty of, and I know a lot of people are guilty of. I when I talk about AI, I'm often talking about machine learning, and when I talk about machine learning, I often talk about AI, and and I I don't necessarily clarify the distinction between them as much as 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 maybe I should. I, I'm not sure, but a lot of the things I was talking about really, you know, like for instance, um. Uh, in IT operations for identifying trends and log files and things like that. That's as much machine learning as it is AI, but um, it still ultimately it in, ends up with the same result, is a, a learning system that analyzes large quantities of data in order to figure out trends and come up with short, short results, the useful results. And that's, you know, whether you talk about machine learning or AI, it's really all the same thing. They all accomplish the same thing. Now, I'm going to hear um, people are going to write to me after this podcast who are AI experts. They're going to say, no, 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 they're radically different. But uh, but I think from from the outsider's viewpoint, it's hard to really differentiate between machine learning and AI. And I don't think the differences are all that critical for the very highest level view. Yeah. Interesting. I, um, I mean, one person described to me, you know, AI as being basically using linear regression, and um, I don't know if that's really a good classification for it. I think there are several um, different approaches to to learning, and maybe AI is even. I don't know, a bit beyond, um, you know, like you, how much model training do you have to do, right? How much human intervention is there or human training of a model is there? Maybe that's where, where that becomes less and less. Maybe that's more where AI belongs. And, you know, when, when it's the machine really, really learning a lot without, having humans teach. I mean, for example, take NVIDIA, right? Well, I don't know a lot about what goes on inside of NVIDIA. I have, um, you know, done some research and so forth at at various points. And I I know at one time, um, their, you know, driving systems and so forth were heavily based on people teaching them what different road conditions represented, right? Where, Where they have a lot of Watch me drive and, and learn how to yes, drive by doing yes, that. and then yeah. and then inform the machine. This means this. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on how that might apply one way or the other? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's you know that is starting to get into the real definitional difference, probably between AI versus machine learning. Is AI is the the machine learning of human interaction versus the machine learning of patterns within data and and there's there is a difference there but i i ultimately wonder whether or not from the grand scheme of things as we're talking you know we're, we're they're both accomplishing the same end result they're just different means to get to the same results and which one's better or not really is context dependent on 
the problem space and what's the best way to solve it. Um, I can believe that uh, um, analyzing human response to complex driving scenarios is a good way to get an AI to learn how to do complex driving scenarios. But I'm sure there's also a flip side where there's a lot of very rote, um, you know, learn from a machine how to make things work, you know, like this is a square on the screen and that's important to tell that that's a square and this is a stop sign shaped symbol and those sorts of, of manipulations. That's AI as well too, or in that case, more machine learning to figure out those sorts of uh, pattern recognition and things like that. And so in the case of driving a car, you're getting both the human learning that goes with it and machine learning that goes into it. And so they're both part of the same system. And like I said, the, the experts will know there's a huge difference between them and, 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 and call me on the fact that I'm kind of merging them together. But to me, most of the time, they're both means to the same ends. And so it, it's all part of the same. Um, from a technology standpoint, from a vision of the future standpoint, when you talk about AI, you're talking about AI and machine learning. When you talk about machine learning, you're talking about AI and machine learning. They're all, they, they both play into the same realm and they both fit together. Cool. I thought of maybe that's a humor. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I, it's just a discussion, right? It's, I think it's an interesting, sure. um, you know, way to, you know, maybe, maybe thought experiment or something like that. I, um, I, I thought of a humorous way that might explain if you're really working in AI. So like when, um, you know, open AI was announced and, and the whatever it was like the top five people who were hired for that and they got like 80,000 followers on Twitter in two days that's that's one way to tell you know like yeah. if you're really working in AI <laughs> you know um anyway yeah, so it's that's it, amazing <laughs> yeah yeah um there you go you know um way the the way to success. So what do you see when you work with um, clients or even maybe in the past at New Relic? What are some of the biggest problems that you see at uh, companies who are trying to modernize, maybe, you know, catch the digital transformation wave? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest problems that companies are really want to go through a modernization effort, what they really face is complexity and and um, complexity of the status quo. You know, they, they have these large monolith gunks of applications, and they just don't even know where to start or how to, how to get themselves out of the muck. And so, you know, you know it's, it's, um, it's a, how do I start? How do I get going? What do I do first? Um, how do I get myself to a position where, it doesn't make things worse rather than better. I mean, I've I've worked with companies that have started the process of modernization and just stopped because they it was way too complex, it was too involved, and they ended up worse off than they were before. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the biggest problems is complexity drives um, uh, resistance to change, which drives lack of ability to modernize even though it's that complexity which is tending to want you to become modern in the first place. Why you want to do it in the first place is to get out of the situation that's holding you back. And, and um, you know, 
often this plays into the management structures as well too. You know, management will look at the application and say, we need to get out of this mess, but we also have these 20 deliverables and these 10 customers and we have quarterly profits and we have all these other things we need to do. That That's all complexity and mucked as well too that gets in the way of the modernization as well. And it's very hard to find the culture of a corporation, the culture of a company that really allows you to modernize out of this gunk in a way that makes it makes the company successful. And oftentimes you have to go down before you go up. And and, and it's and it's very hard. So I, I would say that's the biggest problem that companies run into is is being able to start, being able to get themselves out of this complexity and out of this gunk to get into the position where they can build something better and more modern, as well as the will, corporate will, to actually make it happen. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, just to give you an example, I'm, I won't name or even describe any very specific situation I work with with uh, some clients, but imagine an organization that's um, on IBM mainframe and they have, let's say, like 50 million lines of COBOL code. And just doing a back of the envelope calculation one day in, in, in a meeting, you know, like a, trying to figure out, okay, what to do about this. And you say, well, if we could find a way to convert 100,000 lines of COBOL code per week, what would it take to, you know, completely eliminate or have an entire translation, right, or or something, whatever, um, from the mainframe code, you know, to, to modernized. And it would be more than 10 years. I think for 50 yeah. million lines, it's like 11 or 12 years or something. And it's it's like, wait a minute, by the time that's done, it's not modern anymore. You got to start right. over. You know, it's like, what <laughs> what's, what's even going to happen in five years? So, I mean, one way to think about this, and, and it brings up something, you know, I saw your newsletter, I think, arrived yesterday or something, and, and, uh, and, it, and you mentioned low code yeah. or no code, right, even. And, um, you know, all the code that those mainframes are running is not that complex, right? They're moving data around or they're, they're forms or something like that. Why not, you know, from a DDD perspective, why not purchase some um, generic subdomains that are maybe highly configurable? And why not your, you know, with your supporting subdomains, why not use low code or no code solution? You know, what basically as much as you can possibly get away with, right? Mm -hmm. And then go tackle those really hard problems as core domains and DDD. And, and I mean, even that's going to be a lot of work, but you know, if you could somehow reduce 50 million lines of, of COBOL code that would need to be translated or whatever, not that, not that that's even really possible. Right. 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 I, I mean, I mean like Amazon really has <laughs> this in, infinite eye product, right. Which basically says, well, just bring your COBOL code, over to AWS and we'll run it for you basically in a, in a, um, simulator, right. Or, a um, a virtual, you know, mainframe, so to speak. 
And, you know, it's very interesting technology and, and so forth. But, I mean, that's you still have the problem that you have COBOL, right? <laughs> I mean, that is just that they're, they're just, you know, how many people are you going to be able to bring out of retirement and for how long is that going to no last? When, and then <laughs> right. there's just, yeah, who just nobody is going to work. Not nobody, but like what? 10,000 people at some point are just going to say, okay, I know enough about COBOL to help you. That's just not going to be sustainable among all these banks, financial services organizations, right? So, man, we have to think of really, really different ways to get out of that situation. And it seems like low-code, no-code could be used in very specific, less complex, more like supporting roles of the software rather than the core stuff that the, you know, whatever organization runs uh, mainframes right now, right? What what do you think about yeah. that? I mean, maybe that's even what you're doing today. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you 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 talk about it that way because um uh you're you're absolutely right. Um and you know, I, I think back to when I started in this industry and and you know, that's back in the days when, you know, assembly language really was a very common way of building large systems. And uh, you, you built, you, you wrote, you know, if anyone remembers from the olden days, and I'm, and uh, not too many of us left that do that, I, I know, but, uh, you know, a, an application you could write in a higher level language like C or Pascal or, you know, Java eventually, you know, it, that might take, let's say, 50,000 lines in assembly language would take 500,000 or 2 million or 5 million lines. Um, and, and that level of complexity made it the same problem we're running in today with the COBOL code, the same level of problems that existed, existed back then. And the solution we used back then was we're not going to rewrite this code. We're not going to support this code. We're not going to move it to, you know, this 50 million lines to a different 50 million lines. We're not going to do that. We're going to instead replace it with a higher level language interpretation of the same functionality. So we started moving up the value chain. We started using higher level languages in more and more places. Um, you know, I was back, you know, in, in a day when I was, I, I used C++ to build a device driver in Unix and was written up in C++ journal for one of the first people to use C++ in a Unix kernel. Wait, I got to pause like, right now. You too <laughs> had an article in C++ journal or what was it? C++, C++ report. Which one did you say? Uh, C++ journal. Yeah. yeah. I can't read. Maybe mine was, was Re- Rex. What was his name? Rex something Rex Jassic Jassic or something was the uh, uh, anyway I'm sorry to interrupt you but that made me no, excited no I was like wow that was a long time ago yeah yeah cool but but my point with that is is you know I was one of the first people to use C++ in a Unix kernel driver before then everyone was using C in assembly language and uh, you know now everyone you know lots and lots and lots of people use C++ for kernel level driver support and then now we have languages like you know, then we move up the chain to Java for higher level functionality languages, and now we're moving into into you know Node and Go and higher level languages on top of that, and and we keep moving up the value chain, 
and as well as platforms, um, not just languages, but platforms for building complex applications. And, and, uh, and, and the value chain keeps moving up and up and up where we end up doing less and less to generate larger, more complex things. And I think the, the next evolution in this path upwards is low code and, and low code, no code. Um, and, and I think what we're going to see is a move into building low co- using low code to build large, sophisticated applications where we're going to be replacing these 50 million line applications or these 1 million line applications or these 500,000 line applications in other languages with less complex low code applications that are doing the same thing. And that's going to take time, but it's going, what it's going to amount to when we do that is we're going to, you know, do, you know, the, the further up the value chain you go, the more you preserve your ability to move that code into the future because it's less complex code. Anyway, I think I see that as a model for how we can, in the long term, get out of this buck of too much code, too old of code, can't deal with it. What do we do? I think moving up the value chain and eventually into areas such as low code is the way that we're going to be able to make that happen. And AI-assisted development is going to be part of that. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say what's been very disappointing to me is software developers, engineers' response to the opportunity to use low code because they view it as like, wait a minute, I can't bill as many hours as I used to with this client. or That just it makes no sense to me because it's like, why do you want to spend your time digging through this mess constantly for years and years when you could just be done with it and develop really innovative new software, right? This is the the key because all those problems that were solved, listen, 40 years ago, even (laughs) something like that, like those are just not really the interesting problems to solve anymore. Let's let's get those out of the way and make them work in a modern, you know, computing environment and and then innovate in the really interesting things you know like okay step into ai step into machine learning or whatever it is you know solve new problems and and move up the value chain move up the value chain i just cannot understand why there's such opposition to that it's like we're in you know people with that idea oh we're just infringing on you know the rights of developers to, to, you know, give, you know, just do this stuff continuously and bill hours and whatever their, their mindset is, you know, yeah. it just makes no sense to me. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy. Yeah. The, the number of people I run into, the number of articles I find of people writing against low code because they see it as a, as a, and then you can tell they see it as an invasion to, you know the the re, the real world of programming. It's not real programming. It's it's for people who don't really want to program, and as such, it's insecure, and it's all these other things. It's like no, it's not. It's it it solves those problems as easily as anything else does, and maybe even easier. And it provides value above what you're already doing. Well, why not take advantage of that? Why not use that? Why not let it help you? 
move further up the value chain to do bigger and better problems. Simpler. Exactly. You know, we have a um, an open source platform, the, the Zoom platform, my, my company, uh, Kalele. And, um, you know, it basically, you can, you can start from scratch and just implement microservices or even well-modularized monoliths or whatever, but in a reactive um, environment. So you're, you know, it's a reactive-based platform. Um, but you can use this designer um, to define a domain model and we will generate, you know, um, code all around the domain model and we'll even generate most of the domain model. And all you have to do is go in and, you know, fill in some spots in the to-do where there's some business logic, business rules or something like that. And I, and that's really the definition of low code. So, um, you know, we're poised to, to be in that world and, uh, and like we can just almost eliminate even thinking about, okay, if I see an event from another microservice, how do I react to that? Well, we know how to dispatch that right into your domain model when we see it, right? right. <laughs> so why would you not want to do that? I, you know? Yeah. So anyway, maybe you, um, so we've talked about AI, machine learning, you know, at least similar, if not really the same, um, low code, no code. Do you see any other technology trends that will really be, you know, have a, have a big impact on the industry, um, in the years ahead? Yeah, let's see. We've talked about AI. We've talked about, uh, we talked some about loosely coupled applications. And I think that's, I think we're going to see a lot of focus on loosely coupled applications. And this is not just microservices. This is, you know, using cloud services, it's using SaaS applications, it's application integrations, it's, um, you know, you're going to see application architecture is more of a Lego building blocks, connect these pieces together sorts of, of problems domain than it is of the building, you know, large, tightly integrated software. So that's kind of related to the low code, but, but I think the componentized, loosely coupled software is going to be another trend that continues. And then I, I, I can't forget about blockchain. Um, you know, I, I was kind of a latecomer to blockchain. I, I was skeptical of the whole blockchain as the next generation of the web um, mindset that you, heard, that, you, that you hear about now until rather recently when I started thinking it through a little bit more and realized that what blockchain is really all about and what it brings as a technology to the internet is models for increasing trust and trust between, you know, um, companies and clients, between, you know, between clients and other clients or, you know, users and other users, you know, um, blockchain is going to be useful for, you know, trust in social media and transaction management and, uh, in content attribution, you know, who made that quote? Who said that quote? Who Who's responsible for that quote? And not only from a copyright standpoint, but a, you know, can you, you know, if you said something, can you provide a path of who said it that was, and the research that went behind it? And some of those sorts of, um, of, of um, linking together of data without having to de- 
depend on trusting large corporations to manage all of that, I think it's going to be a very valuable technology direction that we're going. And, you know, whether it's Web3 or whether or not that's a marketing term, I, I don't know. But I think blockchain itself is going to be very critical to large-scale modern applications in the future. I see blockchain right now to be, you know, for very practical use for things like, um, you know, legal documents, maybe, I mean, could be any kind of legal document, but legal documents say around like property ownership or something, something like that. And um, so now you don't even have to worry about, you know, keeping this in a, you know, fireproof place or some, you know, or, or even just right. in your garage or basement or whatever, wherever you can find to, to put this or trust that you go to some, you know, place and you can find, uh, this legal document and how do you know it wasn't, you know, that it, anyway, there are just so many things that can go wrong with that. So, and having a permanent record of this doesn't have to happen like in one second or a half a second or 10 milliseconds, right? It, if it if it takes five minutes for that to happen, yeah. even, it really doesn't matter, right? Right, um, right. So th- I see that as some very practical use of <clears throat> blockchain. Now, what happens with cryptocurrency and all these things, I just really sort of like to stay away from that whole topic. I mean, it's so, you know, uh, I mean, I just, you notice I said blockchain and not crypto. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think there are, uh, uses for it. And I think we will, you know, learn of new practical ways to, to use it. Um, I think it is important though, for whether blockchain becomes more performant or I don't really know, but I guess we have to just as consumers and producers and, or, or, you know, like stores or whatever that we just kind of have to get used to that we've been spoiled by everything happens somewhat instantaneously. Right. And, and that if it takes five minutes for something to settle, okay, just, you bought it, leave the store, right? Le- or, or whatever it is. And you know that because you saw this, it will be done at some point. Sort of like when you buy a book on Amazon, right? It's like, right. you know, you don't actually even don't know if that book is really in stock, right? You don't know. Yeah. It might not be in stock or it is at the moment you buy, but by the time they go through fulfillment and so forth, and that book might not exist. So, maybe three, four hours later, you get an email that says that book was out of stock and then they give you some options. Well, that's that kind of thing I think will not happen with blockchain, but maybe we just have to get used to this is very reliable, but it's not as fast as, you know, NCR cash, you know, like, like a point of sales is right now today. Right. Right. But, and I think oh, to apologize for that. Oh, <laughs> it's my dog. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, we can pause if you want to. 
well, well there's, uh, I mean, we can I just say, we can just say, okay, so Lee has a dog and the dog is commenting in the podcast. Okay. We're going to do that then. <laughs> we won't worry about it. Okay. Uh, now, what do you think though? Okay. When you think of web three, to me, the really dangerous thing is they're talking about decentralization, but actually it's not decentralized at all right now. And the security around how to access the information that you have in a blockchain is really, really open and easily, you know, whatever you want to call it, hacked, tapped, whatever. You know, I don't even think hacked is, it's so easy just it's not the, really you know. hackable. It's it's you know the one thing about blockchain is it's all the information in the blockchain is public, but also attrib- attributed, right? So that that's what's really makes it makes it uh, valuable. Is it, it's not good for storing secrets. No, it's absolutely not good for storing secrets. But it is good for storing information that you want to prove. So um, you know if. You know, the whole world will know that this piece of information is associated with you, and no one can change that. And any variation of that ends up being owned by someone else because whoever makes the variation. And that, that's really what the value of blockchain is. And that's why it's valuable for things like contracts, right? Because, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if a contract, well, in a lot of cases, let's not say contracts, let's say deeds, you know, um, like uh, house deeds and things like that. All of that is public and available, and actually it's useful that it's public. What you care about isn't whether or not it's private. You care about whether or not it's attributable. Is this document that says I own this house, is it attributed to a reliable source of truth? And if it is, then you own the house. And so so as long as you can separate that out and, and realize that, you don't want to think about blockchain as a tool for privacy. You want to think of it as a tool for attribution. And then I think things help a lot more. Yeah, for sure. I guess I don't, maybe it's still a controversy whether OpenSea had um, some breaches in, in security or something. So, you know, I, I guess. Yeah, I there, there's certainly, a, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, you know, there, there's how blockchain informed specifically informs around crypto are implemented and the side effects of those implementations and there's some security issues there that have to be dealt with and yeah and things like that and it's not you know i I also don't want to you know be the the person that says it's it's blockchain therefore it's secure it's not that simple either (laughs) you know there's a lot to it than that but but the um the problems that you run into with with stolen crypto, for instance, are more having to do with the processes that are on top of crypto and on top of blockchain and how they succeed or fail and how those work. And that's that's where a lot of the problems run into. You know, you know, in the in the case of crypto, companies like you know, like a, a you know Coinbase don't change how you buy how Bitcoin works, but they provide a process on top of it that still has all the same old school things like a username and a password and credential management and all that sort of stuff. And all those things that can be hacked. And, um, and, and, and for that matter, a website, 
It's yeah, a website. Exactly. It's, a, it's not decentralized. <laughs> exactly. It's a website, right? So you're running exactly. You're running Web three over Web two, basically. And exactly. Yeah. And and you, yeah, it's still a large corporation, and, and in this case, a very large corporation that's that's uh, um, responsible for it. You have to trust that company and all that sort of stuff. And that's all Web two, right? That's all Web two stuff. I think we won't be in Web three until that requirement goes away. But we're not there yet, you know. You know the, the this this real Web three they talk about is a long ways away, and we've got a lot of things to do before we get there. But it's not going to be companies like Coinbase and Amazon and and Facebook that are going to be part of that. It's going to be some other entities that are distributed, and I don't know what they're going to look like, and I don't think anybody really knows what they're going to look like yet. Yeah. I mean, th- this is very stimulating conversation, so I appreciate it. I, I and I don't want to sound like I'm against something or whatever. It it it's all forward looking and it's all you know very future thinking. But you also have to be aware, like getting getting into it right now, you really have to be very well informed about what you're yes. what you're getting into. So, yeah, it's exciting though. Looks look forward to more of that in the future so okay maybe most large corporations with it you know they want to get their operations into the cloud um and or and or they want to use SaaS, right so how does that um how do you balance that with also okay first of all what isn't going to go into the cloud what will you have running on premise um, and whatever your choice is, what about, you know, how do you deal with security and integrity in your software? That's a, that's a great question. I, it's actually a question I get a lot and I get, um, and I actually try and write a lot about too. There, there's kind of a general perception and it's still, it's been very prevalent in the past and it's, and it's still prevalent even even in the last year or two, um, and that is that that um, the perception is that the public cloud and SaaS services in general naturally increase exposure to security issues and security security vulnerabilities. In other words, if you put your application in your own data center, it's safe. If you put it in the public cloud, it's in the public cloud and it's insecure and not safe. And that perception lingers today, but Actually, the opposite is true. Um, if if you build an application natively built for the public cloud, I argue it's inherently more secure than that equivalent application natively built for your own data center. And and the reason for it is quite simple. You know the the public cloud has best of breed tooling and sophistication built to keep their infrastructure safe. They invest heavily. And keeping, you know, uh, the you know whether it's AWS or or Azure or Google, it doesn't matter. They all invest heavily in keeping the public cloud safe, and they provide tooling and best of breed expertise in how to apply that tooling to your application to make your application safe. And and you know they they script it. They tell you exactly what you need to do, and as long as you do the right things, 
you can build very, very, very safe, very, very secure applications. Now compare that to your own data center where you have none of that infrastructure. You're doing everything by yourself. And this, you know, this half person or full person security person on your staff that's kind of there and knows a little bit about security, they're the ones that are keeping it safe and secure. Nothing wrong with that person, but that's not at the same level of scope as a 150-person security team that builds tools to make your application secure. So fundamentally, the public cloud is more secure than your own data center. And you can build applications that inherently use those capabilities. You're going to build an application that's more secure in a public cloud than you are in your own data center. Now, to a different extent, the same thing's true with SaaS providers. But I do make a distinction here that you know, with SaaS providers, there's a broad range of SaaS providers. There's what I'd call the, the quality SaaS providers that definitely fit into the same cap capability as public cloud providers. And then it goes all the way down the spectrum to ma and pa shops that have no security built in and very small SaaS applications. So you do have to pick and choose in the, in the SaaS world and choose what I would call quality SaaS applications. But as long as you do that, you have the exact same situation there as you do in the public cloud. They lose if security, if they have security problems. And so they invest heavily in keeping your data and your system secure. And if you if not saying they don't have problems, they do, but you're going to be less problems, less problematic in general in a high quality SaaS environment and a high quality public cloud environment than you are in a roll your own situation. Yeah. In fact, I was going to say, Lee, what are you saying? No, it, it's not really more secure to have your own data center. Although I will say that there, there's been this sort of trend, at least, you know, if, if you believe the sort of news and headlines and things that you're reading um, or, or that I'm reading uh, that, you know, companies are saying, well, you know, AWS costs whatever it is, 3,000 times uh, more money for bandwidth than it does for, you know, if we have bandwidth in our own data center, just, just things like that, right? I mean, it's like it's like going to Morton Steakhouse and ordering a baked potato and it's like this $25 potato and you know it costs them like, <laughs> what, 50 cents or 50 something, cents. you know, so, so it's like, wait a minute, guys, you know, like how, why am I paying, you know, 3000 times or whatever it is for, for bandwidth. So some companies are saying, you know what, the cloud really isn't less expensive. And so they're looking, and I'm not saying this is overwhelming, but, you know, but there are companies like saying, you know, walking that back saying, okay, we think our data center is better. What are they going to do? You know, what do you think? Of <laughs> well, so I, 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 I challenge some of that too. And it's like, you're right there. There is, um, you know, anyone who says that the cloud is cheaper than on-prem is wrong. And anyone who says that the on-prem is cheaper than the cloud is also wrong. It, it's not that simple. You know, it's in general, the cloud used the way it's designed to in cloud native applications is cheaper than on-premise. However, almost to a fault, if you take an application 
and just do a copy port to the cloud, it's going to cost more to run. And that's because you're not taking advantage of the cloud and you're you're not doing the things that make the cloud uh, efficient and you're paying the cost for that. You know, that's- just buying a CPU in the cloud and running a 24 by 7 is more expensive than doing the same thing in your own data center. Yeah, that's but called lift long, and shift, As long as right? you use it more efficiently, yeah. so you're, talking you're better about, off. Sorry, I apologize. You're talking about lift and shift kind of thing, right? Exactly, Just like yes. offload. A lift and shift application is rarely cheaper in the cloud. It's usually more expensive. But a cloud-native av- application is built the right way and using the cloud the way it was designed to be used is almost always cheaper than doing the equivalent application in your own data center. So, you know, the cloud is cheaper and the cloud is more expensive. And those are both true statements. So if I hear a company that says, well, we're moving away from the cloud because we found it to be too expensive, almost guaranteed the reason why that's the case is because they did lift and shift and failed. And they need to not do that. Um, now, now, that same person, though, isn't using the security aspects of the cloud either. So they're not taking advantage of the cloud in, the, in any meaningful way. And they're not, you know, the, the whole argument about the, the cloud being more secure than on-premise doesn't apply to them either because they're not building a cloud application. They're taking an on-premise application and moving it to the cloud. That's a very different mindset. So that's why I, I tell people, you know, lift and shift is a tool that helps in some cases for certain circumstances, but it's not a cloud migration. Very true. Yeah. Cloud native is the way to go <laughs> in the cloud, right? Yeah, abs- absolutely. So, all right. So um, let's kind of maybe wrap up our discussion talking about complexity. Domain-driven design is, you know, meant to help uh as it were, tackle complexity or wrangle with complexity and and um, to not to make the software more complex than it needs to be, but um, as simple as it can be, but no simpler, right, is, is maybe a good way to describe it. Or you still have success in the face of complexity where you don't even know the right questions to ask, let alone the answers, right? So um, so how do we balance complexity in the technology part of, you know, the cloud or software development in general? How do we manage that complexity and not make the application or the the area of expertise that we're in which we're solving a hard problem you know how do we not make that software more complex because the technology is complex right does that make sense as a question but i think so i think what you're really asking is you know how do you manage complexity when its complexity is not native to the problem right it's exactly you know if you or at least not that kind of complex right there might that, be complexity the here. The same type of complexity, yeah. right? There might be necessary complexity in the problem, the the business problem that you're trying to solve. But how do you not make right. it more complex by how you're trying to solve it? 
Right, right, right. So I, what I find is that complexity and technical debt kind of go hand in hand, right? You know, they're, they're different sides of the same coin. Um, and so often when you talk about how do you avoid complexity, what I go back and tell people is, well, how do you avoid technical debt? And a lot of the same solutions work in both of those cases. You know, you it is something you need to work on. It is something you need to improve as time goes on. You can make your application have more technical debt by underinvesting or less technical debt by overinvesting. Same thing is true from a complexity side. Um, but more specifically, if you try, say, I have a complex system, I have a lot of muck, and I want to get out of it, what do I need to do? And and that's where it comes down to things like, you know, start disconnecting the pieces and making moving to more loosely coupled application components, and then focus more on on generalization of use cases and reuse of those components. And that's a, will help. Those two things together will help a lot in trying to reduce some of the complexity and focus where you can where your technical debt is and be able to work on removing the technical debt over time you know and, and then use people and organization methodologies like like stosa we talked about and that's something i talk about in my book you know to manage the applications which allows you to pull the political organizational complexity out of the application as well too. It helps reduce that complexity and pull that out as well. And you know, it's yeah, you know, I always talk about, you know, the trinity of um of loosely coupled architectures, you know, ownership, autonomy, and accountability. And as long as you have teams and services and systems that focus on all three of those, not two of the three, but all three of them, ownership, autonomy, and accountability, you can Build a system that is, um, and you can make your system less complex, more usable, reduce complexity, reduce technical debt, and and focus on your application business logic instead. <laughs> yeah. So it's not the cap theorem. Choose two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's not that. <laughs> so, yeah, very good. You, you need to focus on all three. Yeah, very good advice. And pay the debt, right? Like, okay, your big ball of mud, or like you say, the muck, you know, um, it's that way because you, you did not pay debt, right? So you're, you're either bankrupt, technically bankrupt or very near it. Right. So you're, you have, um, you know, you have the, uh, potential for having your, uh, application repossessed, so to speak. And, or (laughs) can't, you know, or as we would call it canceled, um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so, but now you're creating new software and you have the opportunity to pay debt. Just don't let that lapse. Don't like follow you did. old patterns. Right. Don't follow the old patterns. And, and, uh, and I think you need some real maturity to, to lead by example in that way. Right. So, so if you, if you're, if your organization has, not succeeded in that for quite a while, you might ask, um, are we going to be suddenly able to succeed in the future or will we just start ignoring debt when features have to ship, so to speak? 
Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's where we're headed once again. Um, and, and then Hugh mentioned something very interesting, the political side, you know, at, or yeah. even just organizational communication, right? As Mel Conway said in Conway's Law is, um, okay, if all this weird communication and bad vibes are, uh, are, are happening, you're going to have that reflected in your software. Is that sort of what right. you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. It's a, uh, it's um, it, it's amazing. But if you are, if you build an organization that has complexity, you're going to build complexity in your software. If you build an organization that is hard to maneuver and hard to work through, you're going to build software that's hard to maneuver and hard to work through. And uh, it's it's you know Conway's law works. It, it it really does, and not just the structure of the software, but the the feel and the complexity and the the um, um, flow and the lack of flow and the resistance is um, is all parallel as well. Well, it's been a very cool conversation, very uh, stimulating and enlightening, and I appreciate it very much, Lee. Um, so what are you what are you looking forward to in the future? You're gonna to get to travel to Europe again or <laughs> Oh, I hope so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to I was did, you know, like one trip last year and I was planning on making reinvent last year my step back into large um you know forums again, but Last minute, I changed my mind and says, "Then that's too early. It's too early." So now I'm making reinvent this year that forum where I go back into it, and uh, we'll see what it's what it's like. But I I haven't started significant travel yet. I've had, like I said, I've been on air, an airplane once in the last two years, and uh, um, I just don't see it happening sooner rather than later. I and one of the nice things I've I've noticed too is that. It's it's not really in kept me from doing my job. You know, there's certain things that fall by the wayside. You know, there's certain things that you miss with direct human connection. And, you know, certainly in the consulting business and, you know, when I was at New Relic and talking to customers, you, there are certain things you accomplish over a drink. You just have to do that. And those things are probably going to become some collective debt over time that become a problem. But for the most part, you know, Zoom works, you know, and uh, and I'm able to do most of the things I need to do for business without having to travel. It's hard to do a book signing when you, uh, you know, over Zoom, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a well, lot that, more expensive. Big one. Yeah, because you you have to have, first of all, you get the book, you sign it for the person, then you pay a lot of postage to have this yep. <laughs> sent. And if it's going to Europe, that's, yeah, not so ideal. Oh, I've. I've sent books, signed books to uh, to Europe, to Germany specifically, and had you know, huge, huge bills. It's amazing how expensive yeah. it is to yeah. send heavy items to uh, to Europe. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Well, maybe we just thought of a service right where someone could um, take our our signature and best wishes or whatever, and somehow stamp them in the front cover or title page of the book or something and i don't know anyway well it's been a real pleasure and um 
I look forward to, yeah, one day we'll run into each other, hopefully, and be nice to catch up. And so, that'd be great. Yeah. So thank thanks. you for having me on your, on your podcast and, and, and uh, hope it, hope it went well and certainly let me know when it's published. I sure will. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. If I could throw in one little oh, plug at, yep. at the end, yep. if, uh, if anyone wants to reach me to talk about, uh, you know, either to get my book or do uh, you know, I'm working on a couple of other books as well. I'm working on a book for O'Reilly and another book as well too, uh, as well as another book for Redis. I've got one book with them and I'm working on another one. Uh, feel free to um, take a look at my website, leeatchison.com. And there's also information there. And if you want to, hire me to bring me into your company, either to speak to your engineering team or to help you solve a problem. I'm more than glad to help out as well. Cool. And hopefully this conversation is a uh, good indication of the quality that companies will get from that. So, yeah. Thank you. All right. So, yep, do that. And we will have your domain name on the uh, bio. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Take care. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.